Hey everyone, welcome back to Sneaky Powerful, a podcast dedicated to somatic experiencing and overall healing from stress and trauma. My name is Ali Capurro. I'm a therapist and SE enthusiast. Today, before I begin with the interview, I want to say hello to listeners across the United States and around the world. Today's shout out is to listeners in Bolivia, Germany, France, and Taiwan. I'm so happy you're here. I'm going to be sharing my interview with Britt Frank. I found it to be an incredibly useful discussion, providing a glimpse into the intelligence of her book, The Science of Stuck. Feeling stuck is something I can relate to personally and I see frequently in my professional private practice. It's so frustrating to feel like you want to do things and you can't. You're lacking motivation, you're lacking energy. Britt addresses these details of stuckness with eloquence, compassion, and intelligence. She offers ways to shift out of stuckness that can be used immediately. Britt has a direct wisdom that comes through in her fun personality as well as her writing style. Her knowledge slices through concepts that can sometimes feel confusing or abstract in the therapy world. She ends up providing the information we need to move toward healing. Let me tell you about Britt before I get to the interview. She is a clinician, educator, and trauma specialist. She speaks and writes widely about the mental health myths that keep us stuck and stressed. Britt received her BA from Duke University and her MSW from the University of Kansas, where she later became an award-winning adjunct professor. She is a somatic experiencing practitioner and level three trained in the internal family systems therapeutic model. Britt was a primary therapist at a drug and alcohol treatment center, an inpatient therapist at a children's psychiatric hospital, and now owns a private practice. You can find Britt on Instagram, at Britt Frank, or on her website, scienceofstuck.com. Enjoy the discussion with Britt. Well, hello, Britt Frank. Hi, so good to be here. Thanks for having me. So good to have you. I feel really, really lucky and grateful. So Britt and the Science of Stuck. This book has so much information in it. And I'm like, I think we're probably about the same age. And I'm kind of like, how did you do this? (laughs) The accumulation of all the information in the book? Yes. Yes. So when I wanted, when I first wanted to write a book, I was told you can't write a book without a following and I didn't have a following. So I'm like, okay. So I just started basically just making notes on Instagram, which were my posts. And that sort of became a thing. And then by the time I got the book deal, I had like hundreds and hundreds of posts, which were essentially my, that was my outline. So it was more like, I didn't realize I was creating the book until I got a book deal. And then it was like, Oh, like it's all here. Like all the information is here. Just little bits every day. I titrated myself into writing. I Well, which makes sense because of the massiveness of us, like in the sense and by massive, I mean like the content is so rich and covers so many essential pieces of life that I thought 
but it makes sense if you say it that way, like it was titrated to develop uh-huh. this. I love it. How long ago did you start that process? So I've always wanted to write a book that that's been like childhood dream thing, but I didn't actively start working. I mean, I spent maybe three and a half years posting on Instagram. So it was like three and a half years of actually like gathering and accumulating and okay, what what do I want to share from which book? So then after I got the book to become a thing, I wrote it in six months, but I didn't write it in six months. It was over the course of five years of, you know, researching and sharing and teaching and grabbing things. But then once I had 700 posts worth of things, it only took, only took six months from there to put it all together. But that, but it is, it is amazing that it was six months to, to put it into a coherent piece of work. <laughs> Thank that makes, you so much. No, it makes a ton of sense. And I love the takeaways at the end of the chapters. I love the graphs or the pictures and the activities. I'm like, this is therapy in a book. And I really think that I really think that. So I'm excited to refer it and recommend it to starting with maybe, I don't know, people in my family. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How did you get into SE? So I was thinking, I know your story and I really connect with a lot of your story and I appreciate your honesty and willingness to share your story. I think I want to share that my story felt like something I had to hide as shame in the back of my life and, and just your courage is helping like kind of go, okay, our stories are so important and sharing them. It matters. You know, I was ashamed of my story too. And then when I got a job working in actually a drug and alcohol rehab center, I found that my credibility did not come from my my SCP or uh-huh. my degree, my credibility came from, I say fuck and I did drugs. And yeah. it's like, oh wait, yeah. the things that I thought were the most shamey parts exactly. of my story are actually that like, I've had people come in my office and they're like, I wanted to work with you because you swear a lot. I'm like, oh, okay. We'll talk about uh, like harmonious integration and a nice like titrating between, but really the things that we think make our story so shameful are the things that make us human enough Right. to be able to hold space and do the work. I know as a, on the client side, I didn't want to sit in front of someone who was perfect. I would have felt mm-hmm. so crappy. I don't mm-hmm. need to know my therapist's nitty gritty details. Yeah, right, right. But I need to know that they've been jacked up enough that they <laughs> understand shame and they understand at least some level of human fuckery because who wants to sit in front of someone that had a good childhood and a, a solid adolescence and a good high school experience and a functional adulthood? Like, no, thank you. <laughs> I, I can remember telling someone when I was starting to have panic well, how should I refer to them? My system was panicking appropriately, (laughs) but it was disconnected from the trauma at that point. And I was telling someone about it and she looked at me and she was my age. So it wasn't like a therapist, but she looked at me and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, oh my gosh, now I feel like a freak. I love that you said that because well-meaning people will often say in response to someone sharing the words, I'm sorry. And it's such a gross thing to be on the receiving. And again, if you've ever said to someone, I'm so sorry to hear that. No shame. Yes. Forgive yourself. It's fine. You know what? You can only do what you know. But when you say to someone, I'm so sorry, that immediately creates a power differential where the person saying I'm sorry is up here. And then it's pat, pat, ah, poor you down there. A hundred percent. It's just not, I'm sorry. is just not a 
a feel good type of thing to be on the receiving end of. That's so trippy. I've never really thought about it in detail in that way. And I'm thinking it's like a separation, like, Ooh, <laughs> you're over there. I'm over here. Cause I'm sorry. And, right. and again, I don't think that people are malicious in thinking that, but it's oh, no. like a protective yeah. No, but it's a subconscious way of othering pain yes. because we don't want to, you know, I remember going through some of my trauma that people in my life, it was like, it was contagious. It's like, they didn't want to go there or hear about it or talk about it. It's like, don't say, I'm sorry. It, like at the very least, if you don't know what to say, just say, wow, that sucks. Exactly. Exactly. You know? That's perfect. Wow. That sucks. And if you understand, oh, I get it. <laughs> I get your trauma or I get your, I see you. Okay. So you said othering. And one thing that I'm so impressed with in your book and in your conversations that I've heard of like your podcast that you've done is the way you can integrate fuck and these really clinical terms. I'm like, wow, I want to be Brit. That's, that's amazing. She's like wicked smart, but then street smart too. Yeah. The integration of all of those. Yay, integrating clinical knowledge with potty mouth. But, right. They do, I, I did a talk once and I say fuck a lot, unless I'm in a church or somewhere where I've, you know, if I'm talking there, I try to be somewhat respectful, but someone came to one of my talks and came up to me and said, I was just so offended by your language. You know, the information is solid, but that's just offensive. And I was like, Oh, it sounds like that was really hard for you to hear me say, fuck, well, you are super welcome to leave. And I totally understand that. Appreciate the feedback. Totally makes sense. Not going to change my wording. So, you know, bye. And then of course he stayed at the end. He's like, that was cool. I learned so much. I'm like, it's a fucking word. It's a word. And again, when we're dissociated of here's my cleaned up persona Mm -hmm. and here's my, like when we fragment, our lives go off the rails very, very quickly. It's really hard to know who we are, what we're about, what our boundaries should be, who's safe, what's not, if we're not integrated. So say fuck and do work, like do it all. You know, again, if you're working with kids, that's not appropriate. Yes. (laughs) Disclaimer. You know, where did you get that? Were you always like this? Did you always have this? Strength and clarity. No, (laughs) (laughs) this like really clear sense of life. Obviously I know you went through trauma, but as a kid, did you have this, this kind of, no, as a kid, I was so, I didn't really have friends. My life was very fragmented as a child. It was you Mm. neat and clean. Everything has to be just so you're not allowed to swear. The rules are black and white. They're non-negotiable, you know, only trust the family. It was a very dysfunctional, closed, almost cult-like type system. And I didn't understand what it meant to be a human. I didn't understand how to human. I didn't become a therapist because I wanted to like help people, even though that's a nice byproduct. I became a therapist because I wanted to understand how to human. I didn't understand how. Oh my gosh. So no, this was not a, I had clarity on, I, I had clarity on life is pretty fucked up and most people are walking around completely fragmented. That yeah. I knew from an early age, but yeah. I didn't understand it. I thought I was just crazy because everyone seemed to have something figured out about life that for whatever reason was a lot harder for me. So as I grew and did my recovery healing path, I'm like, oh, as a little kid, I was actually pretty wise to see what was up. I was thinking, what did fragmented look like to you as a kid? Can you remember that? How you knew that people were, or you could see that there was fragmentation in people, obviously not with that word, but 
you know, one of the laws of the land in my family of origin was do as I say, not as I do. And so that very much that dissonance of I'm seeing this, but I'm being told that and nothing is matching. And this complete, just disharmonious fragment, I wouldn't have had words for it, but it it just felt wrong. I was like, what, this is not right. But of course the problem is me. I was a difficult child and I was so sensitive. It's like, no, little kids are generally geniuses who can pick up and perceive everything. And we train their knowing out of them. And then as adults, therapy and somatic work, because we have to put the knowing back in. It's not that we're broken. It's that we get trained out of our body wisdom and then we have to relearn it. But I think it's innate for everybody until life trains it out of us, that it's there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes sense for me personally and what I've seen professionally. (laughs) Totally. So you had, you did IFS work and where, what town were you in? Where were you when you did your, or started your IFS work? Personally, I did. Well, I did my somatic and my IFS work all over the country. I did a you know cohort in Seattle. I did a cohort in Chicago. I did a cohort online. So right. I've had the benefit of being able to study under a variety of amazing teachers from both yes. modalities. Yeah. And I know that the typical way to train SE and to train IFS is like pick a cohort, stay with it and do your work. But I did for SE, I did beginning one and intermediate three and advanced with all different people. So I was exposed to different flavors and varieties of the teachings, which I thought was just amazing to see how different people approach the same body of work. I bet. And as, as you say that two things come to mind. And one of them is specifically that when you were little and you said you didn't have a lot of friends. And I was thinking about how that, it seems like that served you as an adult in a way. And I don't know if you would agree, especially the little kid in you, but just having this I, I, again, the strength, I just keep getting this sense of your strength that I'm really inspired by. Thank you for that. And I think, you know, from the IFS lens, the self, I think we all have one. I don't think that there are weak people and strong people. I don't think there are sane people and crazy people. I was fortunate that I had access to really good resources. I was fortunate yes. that I knew about SE. I was fortunate that I knew that the Meadows of Wickenburg had these week-long workshops where you can do family of origin trauma work. And so I had the ability to be able to go do that. And that was not cheap and that was not easy to do, but I mean, I appreciate it. And I own like, yes, I'm a strong person, but so are you. And so is everyone it's, do you have access to the right information? And if you do, do you have the resources to be able to dive in to the right information? And if the answer to those questions are, is no, that's not a strength issue. That's an access issue. And Mm -hmm. I think most people who, you know, someone said to me, well, why do you think some people get recovery and some people don't? It's not a character thing. It's a systemic thing, or it's Mm -hmm. an access thing. If you have six kids and no money and no support, you're not going to be able to get what you need to heal, but that's not because you're broken or weak. It's because there's systemic failures that are making it impossible for you to heal. So all that to say, thank you and I received that ands, ands, both ands. Both ands always. Um, the systemic failure and the capacity to see that, was that always with you? When did that kind of come online for you? 
The systemic thing, I, I mean, I wish I could say I have always had this innate sense of the inequality in the yeah. world and the unjustness, but I didn't. It was really once I got my head on a semi straight and I was able to actually hold some perspective for, hey, there's a world out there. It's not just about me and my pain and my trauma and my shit. And yeah. I healed up enough that I could then look out and go, wow, that's bad. And that's not a personal failing. That's a systemic failing. For a while, it's all I could hear was my own stuff. And then eventually you can look out and go, wow, there's some really fucked up stuff happening in the world. And it's all labeled as pathology. And largely it's not. Yep. I really, really appreciate that. And I appreciate the description because that's exactly right. Once we heal, I think, what's the quote that says something about if we all swept our own front porches, the whole world would be clean. So much. It's so true. And to take it to a sort of controversial place, given what's happening in the world, when really big, big tragedies happen, again, like the first order of business is tend to the survivors, believe the survivors, and make sure the people on the victim side are taken care of. Mm -hmm. But then we need to address our own stuff because it's this othering. It's that's a bad person. I'm a good person. Therefore, they're nothing like me. And then we've got these very, very divided, fragmented, binary splits of they're bad, we're good, therefore. And it's like, no, we all have the capacity for evil. We all have the capacity for good. And it's not that we're all going to do bad things. But if we don't acknowledge that shadow thing in us, then we're going to fragment. And fragmented people cause damage. So, you know, the solution is for all of us to simultaneously be of service and deal with our own shit. It's, you know, do both those things concur currently and the world becomes a better place. Oh man. There's so many really like what you just said, like the othering and fragmented people cause actually what was the rest of that fragmented people cause pain. You didn't say that, but that's the word that comes to mind. Yeah, exactly. Like integrated people who have a sense of their wholeness, who feel Mm -hmm. like I'm connected to all aspects of my personality, the good, the bad, and the what the fuck those Mm -hmm. people are not out there causing pain. It's fragmented people that are ignoring injustices and participating in systemic racism and all that other shit. It's like, So let's all just deal with sweep your own porch, (laughs) you know, be service, sweep your porch, take care of your needs and the world gets better a lot faster, but that's not how we are taught to live. And it's It's still not how we're taught to live. It's not. And voices like yours, I think are part of a huge contribution to possibility that someone else might pick up and learn. (laughs) We are capable of sweeping our own porches and changing. I appreciated, who was it? Someone on Instagram just really said like that hopeless, basically a freeze when we think, oh, there's no way I can help or there's no nothing I can do or I'm powerless. And that that is a trauma response. And I think you even address a piece of that in your book. Can you explain that to our listeners? I think that's kind of a really important piece of this systemic and what's going on in our world today. Well, I mean, I like to say that the opposite of trauma is choice mm. because the one of the definitions of trauma that you can use is that there are absolutely no choices because if you could have chosen freely between trauma and not trauma, you choose totally. not trauma every single time. Otherwise, totally. it's not a choice, right? Totally. So if the opposite of trauma is choice, then anywhere we're feeling helpless and overwhelmed and powerless is going to further amplify this 
trauma narrative. Anywhere we make any choices, even if it's what do I eat? What road do I take? What shirt do I put on? What pant leg do I freaking put on first? Like anywhere that our brain is conscious of a choice point, that's going to be a counterbalance to the trauma injury every single time, no matter how small. So you may not be able to impact gun policy in Mm -hmm. your community, but what choices do you have for creating something that's not shitty? Like there's something you can do, whether it's feed your child, hug a puppy, volunteer, donate, like whatever. And if you don't have a lot of bandwidth for dealing with the world, fine, pick something, no matter how small. And that immediately will take you out of this rigid trauma freeze. I have no choices thing. So any choice in any direction to any degree is going going to be medicine for a trauma wound. It's not going to fix everything, but it'll start the process. It'll start. And it it, like, like the science of stuck, like getting yourself out of that kind of frozen, not, or helpless, disempowered. Cause we can all do that. We can all do something simple. I love that. Right. We could all do something. And again, if every single person made a tiny itty bitty little choice, mm-hmm. you would see that compound very quickly. But the, I can't do anything, which sometimes is a freeze response. And sometimes it's easier because if I can't do anything, then I don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you don't have to do everything, but within the reality of your environment and your context, what is a choice that you can make today? And if Mm -hmm. the answer is nothing, then that's almost always a lie because it's almost never the case that there's nothing to be done. It may not be as big as you want it to be. And I have compassion for that. Sure. Sure. But there's always something that we can do to do, to move. How is it? What's coming to mind is that you are really comfortable holding people accountable. And I'm probably projecting my own trauma (laughs) into that statement, (laughs) but I love that because you're like, no, it's almost always a lie. You can do something. And the holding people accountable thing is funny because I actually don't believe fundamentally any adult can hold another adult accountable. Sure, sure, sure. Which is why I have trouble with accountability partners. It's like you're a grown up, have somebody that you check in with. But I was captain of the team of avoid, minimize, negate, excuse. I didn't want to deal with my shit. I didn't want to deal with the reality of my choices. I wanted to Mm -hmm. take no, I would have been diagnosed with what, like what SD people know is complex trauma, but I had all the symptoms of borderline. So Uh I would have been considered like a classic borderline personality disordered person. So for me, it was, I didn't heal until I took responsibility for my own actions. So I'm not going to hold you responsible, but I'm going to say, I don't believe you when you say there's nothing you can do. Yeah. I'm not going to buy what you're selling, but if you want to sell that, that's fine. I'm just not your buyer. (laughs) I am in awe because yes, like coming from that to where you are today, coming from the captain of the team. That's a testament to what good work can do. It's a testament to like the power of SE because that was really the thing that sort of change the trajectory for me. Cause I didn't do therapy cause I was fine. I was good. I didn't need therapy. And eventually when I finally hit my end and said, I need some help. I was very, very fortunate that I had an SCP sitting in front of me. Her name's Candy Smith and she's out of Kansas city and she's brilliant. And she assists all over the world. And she was the first person that used the word trauma with me. She was the first person that said, 
Hey, I think we may have some trauma. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't have trauma. My parents are married and I never was in a war and I was never this or that. And if you don't know that you have trauma, you're going to think it's you. And then you're going to create chaos in the world because traumatized people do bad shit in the world. And then off we go on this cycle. So it was both learning how to honor the reality of my trauma and then take accountability for the ways in which I created chaos. It's not that I can absolve myself of responsibility, but it all made sense. You know, when you heal trauma, the fuckery stops. So like heal trauma. Oh my God. Yay, There's like 20 questions along that line, but I guess I wanted to do it a little bit of a connecting. Like I remember I, until I found out it was actually trauma, I thought it was me the whole time. Talk about a shame spiral and just such a shame. Oh my God. Things like the 12 steps, which I love and I appreciate and yeah. I work, but they do fall short because they're not trauma informed. Yep. And if you think that you're crazy and you're broken, then you're not going to be able to take accountability for your actions because of the shame that's involved. I could not hold space for the reality of my totally. choices until I understood the origin of them. If you don't understand trauma, it's going to be way too shameful to acknowledge anything. And then you're not going to, and then the cycle continues. Again, trauma doesn't excuse anything, but if you have an explanation, then you can at least hold the, okay, so I made some really bad decisions. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I do not absolve myself of them, but I understand the origin, which allows the self-compassion necessary to do repair work. Oh my gosh. Exactly. Damn. Mic drop. Like what else can we say? That's <laughs> it. <laughs> but no, that is so accurate. And then, uh, and now, cause I'm kind of like going back in my mind to holding people accountable because I think, again, like I said, projecting my own experience, but I think what, how you framed it is holding ourselves accountable. And then I'm not buying what you're selling. It's, it's different than like holding someone accountable. It's, I trust myself. And that doesn't fit yes. and make sense for me. And that's okay. Or I don't have to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And when people are like, well, you need to hold people accountable for their decisions. Like, yes, but like, it's the wrong framework yes, to look yes, at it because yeah. you can't control people. I mean, this is first rule of humaning. If you could control other people, we would not be in this world that we're living in, but you can't hold someone else accountable, but you can refuse to enable the behavior. You can turn your attention elsewhere. You could spend your money elsewhere. You can vote elsewhere. So rather than this idea of, I can control you by holding you accountable, it's, I can control me and I can choose over there instead of in your direction. And that does this, that gets us to the same outcome. It totally does. And it's that choice, like you said, and empower because I was thinking as you were saying that I was thinking what keeps us from doing that besides our own stuff and shame and all that I was thinking that I don't know if it's I don't like the need to belong or appease to say stay safe it keeps us trapped in these this inability literally to have that choice of going elsewhere god the layers of it are just fascinating. So many. Well, then there's the child's layer too, because I think, and I'm sure you experienced this too, when people come in and they're like, tell me what to do. Tell me what to think. Just tell me which way I want to go. What I hear is this very deep yearning to be parented. And if we're not parented properly as children, then we don't get it and we're never going to get it. And then it's our job to do it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't negate the need to validate the grief of I'm, you know, I don't know how to hear myself think because I was never parented properly. Mm -hmm. That's a wound that deserves 
airtime, but that does not mean that somebody else is going to be able to do it for you. And that sucks. That's a hard sell. It's like, no one's coming to save you. No one is coming to parent you. Like, and then other, but the gift, the gift of the reality, like you say, it, it's like, yes, it's painful and it's so sad and not fair. Not and fair at all. Yet, if you face it at when you're ready and when you can, like with you, like what you said with access and resources, there's a gift afterward. Sure as shit doesn't feel like it during the process. Not <laughs> even a little bit. And I have a part of me that wants to like quickly go back to the whole justice accountability thing. Yeah, with my, dis- yeah. my disclaimer, I'm not talking about the justice system. I'm not talking about <laughs> judges and juries holding people accountable for crimes. Like that is not the thing to which no. I refer when I say, don't hold people accountable, hold yourself accountable. So yes, yes, I like yes, disclaiming yes, things because I've had enough fuckery on the internet with people coming at me that I'm like, I have learned to anticipate. <laughs> I bet. Okay. We need to put a big disclaimer around whatever the thing is that we're talking about, you know? So there's that. <laughs> I appreciate that because it'll either come at you or come at me. One <laughs> of us, right? We're not talking about the legal system. We are talking about the personal development journey and the self-actualization journey. And like you said, there is a gift in facing the truth of no matter how ugly the truth is, the truth, you know, what is it? The truth will set you free, but first I'll kick your ass. I don't know who yeah, said that. But I don't like, either. But yeah. <laughs> it's so true. I didn't come up with that. But I subscribe to it. <laughs> I subscribe. We're we're big fans here on this uh, on this podcast. I want to talk about how you synthesize SE and IFS, and are you're trained in IFS? Yeah, because yeah, I love the two. I think I those two are. I think they are so harmonious because you really can't be effective. Okay, not. Not everybody for, for me, for me as Brit, as a practitioner, I find that SE by itself is insufficient. Mm-hmm. And I, because it misses out on all this rich shadow psyche parts stuff and it's important, but SE is primarily and purely physiological, but IFS does not talk about the central nervous system or about the dorsal vagal shutdown or about any of that. So when you put them together, all of a sudden you've got this incredibly potent dual model where you've got everything covered. You've got the physiology covered. You've got the parts covered. You've got shadow work covered. You've got cognition covered. And so with IFS, I'm essentially doing SE on people's parts. So let's say someone notices an angry teen part. It's not, what do you feel in your body? It's okay. What does that teen feel in their body? So it's Mm -hmm. sort of like meta IFS where you're Mm -hmm. doing SE on different parts Mm -hmm. because a childlike part is going to have a different nervous system state than an angry teenage part. So let's do both at the same time. That I want to sit with that for a few hours. That's actually exactly right. SE on people's parts. I love that. Yeah. Right. And then it's, what does that part want to have happen next? And all of the SEQs that we're taught, you know, notice, see what happens next. And mm-hmm. how are you experiencing this? Is it an image? Is it a sensation? You can actually do that with people's parts, which is pretty freaking magical. I mean, it's not magical, but like it feels magical to watch it because that's where you can integrate. Mm-hmm. Multiple parts of me are experiencing different body sensations all the same time, all the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's not because I'm crazy. Like, why do I feel torn in two different directions? Yeah. You have two parts, each experiencing your physiology differently and they are not in any way connected to each other. So we can reconnect and make space for all of it. This might be not a good question, but do you have an example of that? Or if you were working in a general way with someone, 
Can you think of a time where you've really seen that clearly where the younger part and the impulses or the sensations, I I was thinking in my own experience, competing impulses, but that might not be what applies, but do you have an example that comes to mind? Oh, tons. You can think, and a really extreme example would be working with suicidal parts. Mm. So when people are really blended with, and you know, as clinicians, we're terrified. And again, I don't want my clients to harm themselves. Like that's really scary for us. But if you are able to communicate with and create separation between the person's self, their self state and the part of them that's suicidal, then you can start to access the rage and just this overwhelming, complete flooding of rage and fear. And then you can work with that part by one normalizing. Of course, that part feels that. Of course, that part wants to kill you. Of course, that part wants to absolutely just take you out of all of this. That makes sense. And then you can actually see those parts of them settle enough where the person can recognize a separation between their self-state and the suicidal part. And Mm -hmm. then the person and myself as the therapist can kind of co-create a supportive environment for the suicidal part instead of trying to shame it or judge it or try to create a plan so that part feels like it's in control. It's like, let's, and again, it's scary work, but suicidal parts have the same intention as any part, which is to protect Protect. and defense. So let's make space for them again safety plans and using multiple resources. If I have a very highly acute person, I'm not going to do it myself. I'm going to make sure that they have a psychiatrist and that they have a crisis counselor and that they have a group. I'm not going to just, let's talk to your suicidal part in the absence of a holistic wraparound plan because that's not ethical or safe. But if you can create enough safety for suicidal parts, you'll find that their somatic experience of their rage is very manageable and we can work with it. And then the person has respect for their suicidal part instead of judgment, shame, and disdain. And that's magical when you can actually honor even the most destructive impulses of the most destructively damaged quote parts of me are actually incredibly helpful and useful and valuable and unburdened. They bring a lot of awesomeness to my system. You know, that's a lot of energy. So when a suicidal part is unburdened of that job, all of that energy is now available as a resource for the person's self-state. I love that so much. I love the unburdening. It it kind of creates for me a carrot or a reward, like, because sometimes it feels like, why is this worth it? And, oh, if I unburden and then I have access to all of that, because uh, like suicidal thoughts and tendencies, those are require a lot of energy to follow through with that. Yeah. Yes. And drug addicted parts. And I'll use myself for this one. It's like, I used to be so ashamed of my drug addict parts and I hated, you know, again, the behaviors are not excusable, but the origin of the impulse to do them is. And then it's like, oh, I can actually have compassion on my drug addicted parts. Like they lied and they manipulated and they stole and they did all these terrible things, but unburdens, that's a lot of great. If you're an entrepreneur, doesn't mean you should lie and cheat and steal, but properly channeled, that's a lot of resourceful energy and it's resilient energy. And it's how can I figure out a healthier way to do things? But my drug addicted borderline parts are all part of my like my business team. And yeah, they do I was thinking <laughs> they do helpful things. Again, it's not that I'm saying you should steal in business. It's like, but take that no. energy of I'm going to find a way to get these needs met, exactly. channel them in a healthy way. And all of a sudden that's a lot of awesome energy for you to do good things. 
That strikes me so strong as I think through, like, I remember being in a high school class. It was when I met my boyfriend, as a matter of fact. And I said, do you ever feel like you're crazy? It was a psychology class. And, and we were talking about Jeffrey Dahmer and, and it piqued his interest. He's like, Ooh, I think this girl's maybe interesting. <laughs> But point of the story being, I, I I recognize the line being so thin, so vague between the energy, for example, to steal and the energy to write a book. Like, I don't know, not everyone has that same, I don't know what it is, not empathy, but it just doesn't feel too different to me. <laughs> it doesn't and feel too not, far. And I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer, talk about an extreme example. And I'm not saying we should all just have empathy on his behavior because his parts were traumatized. It's like, no, of course not. We're, no one is saying that. Right. What we are saying is there's not that much of a distinction if you're talking energy output between doing something toxic and doing something constructive. Those both take resources. Yep. And if you have a neutral store of energy available to you, then you can mobilize. And that's, if that's not SC, I don't know what is. Totally mobilize. I think Peter Levine talked, I feel like he got to talk to Jeffrey Dahmer's parents at some point. Really? I hadn't heard that. I hope I'm not making this up and I will come back and correct it if I did, but I feel like he interviewed his parents and they said, I feel like there was a story about him being having maybe a surgery or a procedure without any, what do you call that? Anesthesia. Ooh. Yes. Ooh. And, and for me, this is the correlation or connection between, I guess what comes to mind is reenactment. <laughs> and if we are more trauma-informed society, we'll understand those pieces better. And not that everyone who goes through that turns into a Jeffrey Dahmer, but. Um. Right. Well, I also think people equate the word compassion with the word permission. And somehow if I have compassion on someone that I am giving permission for those behaviors to exist in a, you know, just let them exist. But compassion yeah. is not a synonym for permission. Yes. Compassion is, I understand origin. That does not mean in any way I'm giving permission to or subscribing to or enabling a behavior. But if we can separate out compassion from permission, then we can actually start healing those wounds of people before they turn into Jeffrey Dahmer's versus. Yes. Exactly. You know, exactly. Yes. That's the goal. Tell me if this sounds right to you, but your capacity to do that for yourself, to have compassion, but not permission is I, to me, it's kind of feeling like that's what gives you the capacity to do it to others. Does that feel accurate? I think so. I mean, I think people that work with me know that I have had to hold myself accountable and do a lot of repair work for a lot of the damage that I caused by my behaviors, but I don't sit and spin in the self-loathing, shamey place. And it's like, that's the dialectic, right? How can you hold accountability for yourself and self-compassion at the same time? Exactly. And that's largely, I think, why people don't, because again, if they, if they acknowledge the reality of their fuckery, the shame will take them out. Mm -hmm. But if you can balance self-compassion with self accountability, then change can happen. Sustainable change can happen. And it's, you know, it's a, wor it's a worthwhile journey to take. It's so worthwhile. Do you remember the beginnings of that process in your own experience and how you did that? Because I think 
That's hard. I wish I did. I wish I had like a, here's like the defining moment, but it was more like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just like, I know I made a big mess and that I need to do something different, but it was more like I crawled through the mud. And then at some point I looked around and I'm like, oh, life doesn't suck anymore. I figured a few things out. Mm. And then I like took a shower and looked around and went, what, what just happened? Mm. But it was like a 20 year, just grasping for straws situation. It wasn't like, ah, yes, here I am now with the clarity to do the thing. It was more retrospect than like, you know, as I was going, I had no idea that I had picked up the stuff. And then I stopped, looked around and went, oh, I'm okay. Like everything's okay now. Cool. Well, what the hell just happened? And then I started writing things down. (laughs) (laughs) And then my journey was long. 20 years and you know, whatever it's always going on, but it's a long process of healing. It, is. it astounds me sometimes. And it makes sense to me why people, yeah. Why they don't do it. I get that too. If I had known mm-hmm. how long this process uh-huh. was going to take mm-hmm. me, I probably wouldn't have started. But then again, what's the alternative? It will exactly worse. It's definitely worse. Like you said earlier, it's so worthwhile. It's so worthwhile. I kind of feel pulled to open up your book for a second. (laughs) And I was thinking of all of the different tools that literally can, no matter where you are, in my opinion, you could pull from and start there in using, like I'm looking at it's um, in how to human. Oh, how to make amends. I'm like, oh my God, I could use that today. And without any other information and do really well and make a lot of progress. It was important to me for this book that it wasn't clinical or academic or Mm -hmm. theoretical. It's like, I wrote the book that I wish someone had written when I was 20. And it's like, I just need bottom line shit. I don't want to know all the things. Just tell me enough and sum this shit up so I can get it and start using it like right now. And so the amends is, you know, I created a very easy, you know, bullet pointed model based off of the 12 steps. Their concept of making amends is beautiful, but Again, it's a it's a lot of behavior modification. It's a lot of take ownership over your moral failings. And I don't like that. And I don't subscribe to that. So I took the idea of amends, mixed it with this idea of self-compassion and nonviolent communication and sort of created, here's a four-step thing for when you fuck up, how to repair the relationship quickly. Yeah. God. We all mess up. We all mess up. Like we all miss the mark from time to time. As far as repair, were did you how did that go for you when you had to repair and do this, make amends? Well, a lot of the repair work was done sort of not in relationship. So the 12-step model says I may direct amends to people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or other people. And that includes yourself. Sometimes if a relationship is burnt to the ground, it is not in anyone's interest for you to like try to reach across the rubble and connect. So some of the amends are just behavioral shifts or, you know, finding ways to contribute to society over here to sort of counteract the damage that I created over there. So direct amends is not always a possibility. So that's one way, but it's not the only way. That's really helpful. There's so, so much. It's like, once you learn that there are some guidelines to how to be human, how to do it, how to human, it's so forgiving. Cause as you're saying that it's like, yeah, people don't know that (laughs) when you don't know, you're just like flailing and then making more messes sometimes. (laughs) Yes. And that's what I want the title of my next book to be how to human. Not that I have like the, here's how I think you should human. But again, if we, if we have just a few 
few basic pieces of information, yes, we can do so many things. It's like, oh my gosh, like once you learn how to write, now you can write and you can draw and you may become an artist, but you may just enjoy doodling. It's like with one basic skill, a hundred paths can be forged. So like, here's some information, do with it what you will. Exactly. Empowering choice. Yeah. It provides the opportunity for choice. Yes. Yeah. Right. I love that. I also loved, (laughs) I'm just going to go through because it's so fun. And I think if you're good, we still have about 12-ish minutes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the happily ever after and other toxic fairy tales. And especially Edward and Bella and Twilight when you're like, um, stalking. (laughs) Oh my God. Like, okay. I talked about this with someone the other day. Our great epic love stories are mostly tales of codependence and pathology. So Twilight, Edward and Bella, he stalked her, um, isolated her, emotionally abused her. He watched her sleeping without her consent. What the fuck? Okay, Jack and Rose and Titanic. First of all, they were 17. They knew each other for maybe a total of 72 hours. Like I've seen people say, you know, when she got to heaven, she's with Jack. But like, what about her freaking husband of 50 years like she was with jack for 72 hours like (laughs) i have things in my fridge longer than she and jack knew each other that is really messed up okay bell and the beast is stockholm syndrome and narcissistic (laughs) abusive bonding with your captor i could go on and on but like that is not love that is pathology sorry no it's so helpful yes as adults we're like there's still this piece of us like but but if he shows up randomly at my work, that's so sexy. Oh my God. Or, okay, The Notebook. And I love the movie, The Notebook. I really did. I thought it was so beautiful. But he got a date with her by threatening suicide. That's for emotional real. abuse. Like, oh, for real. how many clients have you worked with? I know yes. I've had plenty yes. whose yes. partners threaten suicide yes. and so they stay. That is abusive. That is not romance. I see it in, in middle school. I'll have parents talk uh-huh. to me about middle school behavior like that. Like if you don't send me a pic of whatever, I'm going to kill myself. I'm like, Oh, I have God. so much compassion on parents. I don't have children, <sighs> but like how hard to right. raise little humans in this world. Like, Oh my gosh, little Even, kids are not wired to take in all the information that's coming at them. Sorry. No, go ahead. no, 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 no. You're exactly right. And I was thinking about when you said social media or like disclaimers, because people come after you and then having this young 20 something or 18 or teenager, like, ah, uh, having people come after them. It's yeah. They're not wired for that. Nope. Makes my heart sad. <laughs> The way you, and it makes more sense now that you say you titrated and collected these over, you know, a five-year period, but the books you mentioned in like the, the Alchemist, the Hero's Journey, Pema Children, like, I'm like this, I love Brit. I don't even know her and I love her. These are all the things I love. And then she put it in this really cohesive, easy to understand format that I can refer to. I think the beliefs that block the transition to emotional adulthood and just becoming an emotional adult in general, it was, it was a really, you have this style that I perceive as very compassionate, but then also very direct. And I really appreciate it. 
Well, I found, I mean, I'm from New York, so I was not raised with the value of honesty, but I was raised with the value of be direct. So, <laughs> you know, I had to extract that. And cause now I live in the Midwest where everyone's very friendly and it's like, just tell me what's up. So I know where we stand this, like, let's all just be direct and unskillful is super harsh, but this whole let's all smile and be nice is also super bullshitty. So somewhere in the middle is you can be direct without being a dick. And if you can balance both, then it's just more efficient that way. It's more efficient. Have you noticed what I'm starting to notice lately is when it's that mm, when someone has the capacity to tolerate it, like if I'm going to be direct with you, there's this part of me that kind of senses into, oh, she can tolerate it. Like I'm deciding for the other person, can they tolerate the truth? Can they not? Which is like crazy making codependent central again, (laughs) coach here or yeah. (laughs) Right. And that's where choice and consent and permission comes in. And if you're in a relationship with someone and you don't know if they can tolerate directness, you can say to them, Hey, would, you know, I have some feedback for you. Are you available to hear it versus just going in with the feedback? I think for me, I learned some of these therapy things and I like, was like a jackhammer with them. I'm like boundaries and you know, no, you will, thou shalt not trample on my boundaries. I'm like, okay, I'm being a little bit of a bitch about this. And it's not really necessary. If you're holding boundaries, you don't have to be a bitch. That's the nice part about boundaries. So it's confusing to figure out, but with the book, I just needed to be direct. Otherwise it would have been a thousand pages long. For sure. For sure. It's like, I can't explain and go into detail and loop around. I just have to say it. That makes so much sense to me. Oh, rituals and your grief work. That was really... So your directness, but then this was a really tender part of, um, I love rituals and there's not enough in our culture. Not enough at all. You know, they're either put into such a dogmatic religious form that they lose all of their meaning or they're they're lumped in the super woo hippie drippy category where it's not in any way valid, but all rituals are somatic. If you think of whether you're burning something or smudging something or dancing or singing or lighting a candle, that is all somatic. So when I I'm trying to like sell SE on people and rituals. I'm like, even if you don't believe a one thing about the emotional impact of rituals, which sidebar is evidence-based and it works, but like, even if you didn't believe in that, Mm the very act of lighting a candle somatically is going to regulate your system because it's touch and it's smell and it's sight and it's multi-sensory. And so the very act of participating in a ritual will inherently settle and regulate your nervous system. Mm -hmm. Then if you can attach meaning to it and then like some sacred elements to it, that's one of the most powerful tools Mm -hmm. for both our minds and bodies and our spirits and our nervous systems, rituals are powerful and they're evidence-based and there's a neuroscience reason why we should be doing them. It's not just religion and super woo. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing wrong with either of those, but like, if you're not religious and you're not a super woo, like, okay. Do you make up super woo? Because I get annoyed with the word. I I get annoyed with woo woo, but I really like super woo. (laughs) Woo woo sounds like a little kid. Like woo, it just sounds like a baby talk. Always been like, oh. So super woo just gives me this image of like the hippie, like with a bunch of smudge sticks and incense with a cape. And it's like, I'm not anti, I am a super woo. I do really weird shit in my own personal practices, but like there's a neuroscience basis. You know, my husband's like, oh, there she goes with her rocks around the house again. And it's like, 
it's somatic. It's sensory. They are pretty and I can touch them and they calm me down. I mean, I have one right here. It's like, you know, like it's not a magic rock. It's a smooth stone that when I fidget with it helps me feel a little bit more downregulated. Yeah. Yeah. And if I decide I want to make it my magic rocks, so be it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And I think, oh, I have mine right here too. (laughs) But yeah, exactly. It kind of, for me, it also connects because it was given to me by someone I care a lot about and it connects with that. Mm -hmm. Like they're with me. I don't know. Yeah. Well, if, okay, if we're going to talk super woo, and let's so do it. I have a pendulum here as well. Now, like the way you're supposed to use it is like you ask the fates and then it's yes or no, but I don't like that because I think that outsources our power. So for <sighs> me personally, I like to hold it and spin it in a circle and I'll just like count the circle. I'm going to count to five this way and then I'll count to five that way. And for me, that that regulates me. Or at yeah. the end of the day, I'll imagine, right? Because we get to imagine things because we yes. know our imaginations are powerful. I'll imagine everything that I gave of myself, yes. I'm getting back into me. And it's just a freaking piece of metal. Make it mean whatever the hell you want yes. it to mean. It's like do your thing. And there's a lot of really cool tools around and you can make shit up. That's like, mm. I get to make stuff up. You can decide that this water bottle is your magic wand. If exactly. you want. It doesn't <laughs> like take something, do a ritual, do it consistently. And often enough, your brain is going to learn, Oh, the magic water bottle makes us feel good. Do mm. this a hundred times. And now I have my, my thing. So you can do it with pretty much anything. I, that makes sense. And it makes sense. It connects for me in my mind to childlike kind of wonder and creativity. And yep. And play. And then this adult piece of, I have to be in this world and I need to let this shit go. So I've got to figure out how to combine these two things. Oh, And your chapter and offering like the rituals for grieving childhood. Love those. They were very helpful. Okay. I'll skip to the end in my favorite parts. Let's see. Rejoicing in ordinary things is not sentimental or trite. It actually takes guts. Each time we drop our complaints and allow everyday good fortune to inspire us, we enter the warrior's world. That's Pema's children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so good. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you today in this moment? So especially with the world burning down between COVID and the Ukraine and school shootings, I think it's very easy to either feel guilty about having access to joyful little moments or to minimize and invalidate them. Again, the world is not served by a bunch of frozen people feeling helpless and overwhelmed. So rejoicing in the fact that you had a cup of coffee this morning and that you were able to walk outside your house without fear like that doesn't in any way take away from the reality of the pain in the world. It just equips you to be more useful out in the world. So rejoicing and taking pleasure in what is working is not sentimental or toothless or in any way invalidating of the reality of pain. It equips you to do something about the reality of pain. So I'm a big advocate of do whatever is available to do, but you also get to own what's working. And if you have a lot that's working, great. Like name that, internalize that because that will give you a lot more energy to be useful. Someone who doesn't have a lot of access to good things right now needs to receive. So when you have to give, you give. And when you need to receive, you receive. And the more you have, the more you can give. So it's like, it's in everyone's best interest for you to be happy and fulfilled and to celebrate what you have in your life that's working. This question came up when you were describing that, because I hear a lot of people say, minimize their own pain by kind of talking about people have it worse. Does this, what you just said, does that fit with 
that thinking as well. Yeah. And again, the, like, I don't have a right to either my pain or my joy because other people have it worse is this very black and white binary thinking. And it doesn't do them any good for you to lie to yourself. The fact is, is you do have it really good. So like you can feel guilty about that, which is going to render you immobilized, (laughs) or you can celebrate that, which is going to give you something to give to the people over there that need what you have to give. And so perspective on privilege is good. Comparison is is an either or if then me or you and it's you know comparison is sort of like restrictive and perspective is expansive mm-hmm. so have perspective and then go and do something with the fact that you have a lot of good stuff that's great i'm happy for you don't lie to yourself and pretend like you don't right but you do so cool like let's just be true about what's good what's not what's working what's not working and again integration requires honesty about yes. not just what's bad in our life, but honesty about what's good in our life too. Exactly. Yes. I love that you connected it with constrictive and expansive because that's a, the somatic piece, right? Like I have this thought and then not only uh, am I having these thoughts, but I'm also physically constricting and yes. shutting down yes. and freezing. Yeah. Okay. So I'll wrap up sadly. <laughs> Spending time with you has been really um, educational. I, your brain, I really enjoy your brain and how it works and puts things together. I'm like, this is so fun, but yeah. What do you, what are you listening to? What are you watching these days to keep you inspired? What's well, I'm not, on? I'm watching the West wing for like the 50th time, because mm. as an anxious person, I need the comfort and the stability of characters and storylines that I know. Yes. yes. So I watch the same shows on repeat over and over and over. Mine's Shit's Creek. Mm-hmm. And my family's like, how many, you've seen this so many times. And I'm huh? like, yep. I feel so, you named it though, right there as an anxious pers- person, it just feels so safe. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of what I'm watching and what I'm reading. I just finished Martha Beck's new book about integrity, which is also about splitting and shadow work and being in alignment with yourself. And, you know, anyone that's committed to telling the truth in whatever form that makes sense, that inspire that always inspires me. So (laughs) I've dabbled with how she said uh, she went through what an entire year without lying. And I'm like, Oh, I couldn't do that. I I don't think I could do that. Do you listen to her podcast? Her too. I, she is amazing. She should probably have you on at some point. Um, <laughs> let's see. I guess that's it. I guess that our time is up. And yes, you provided. Oh, how about any music? Favorite songs? That's a fun one. I'm listening to the soundtrack of Encanto on repeat these days. I, you're, what you're doing for me is like just validating my life. You know, because like, especially having a, 13 year old who's like, oh my God, and can't And I'm like, but, but, but <laughs> I love nice, it. Nice, I'm like super but... cool with music. I love Disney and Disney's regulating to my nervous system. So I will listen to Encanto more times than I care to admit publicly, but yeah, I do. Yeah. But that, so people, yeah, take that, take away <laughs> if it regulates you. Listen to whatever the hell you want to listen to. Do what you want to do. do Permission. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your busy life (laughs) to do this. Thank you. You're so awesome. My nervous system really likes you. So happy to do this anytime. (laughs) Awesome. Good. Good. I'll be ready for your next book. Hopefully the show will still be going on by then. And I'd love to have you on, but maybe someday. Do you assist at 
SE trainings? I have, but no, not anymore. You're probably too busy. <laughs> and do you do anything with IFS or just learn it? And Same. Then, okay. Cause you have a full practice, practice. Mm-hmm. and write books. Yeah. Yeah. That's enough. Yeah. I find other ways to contribute to the world. <laughs> Yeah, this is a big one. So I would recommend Britt's book to everyone, anyone, all of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So good to be here. Thanks so much for listening to Sneaky Powerful. I hope you're enjoying the interviews and I look forward to sharing more with you all. If you want more information about somatic experiencing, their website is traumahealing.org. And if you'd like a little more information about me or the podcast, you can find that at sneakypowerful.com or at sneakypowerful on Instagram. See you next time.